0: This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. We're approaching the city gate, and it's a city they did not want to go to. They knew that this was going to be different. They knew that this was going to be hostile, Jesus had told them on at least three occasions that we know of, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to allow myself to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be beaten. And I'm even going to allow them to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to pull off Easter. And he told them this, but they they couldn't fully process and they had difficulty. Sometimes we read the word of God and we understand because we kind of know the end of the story, but they were living it in the moment. They just know that Jerusalem, once we go through that gate, it's going to be tough. They're out to get you. Why are we going here? We know in life that people's last words are a big deal we go online and we search different people's, the the last statement they made, their last phrase or their last words, and it's a big deal. But sometimes there are last words before the last words. And in this moment, Jesus is going to speak some words to his followers and to the crowd that's around because he knows after this moment, when we go through those gates, it's going to be intense. We've got one week. Before the crucifixion, it's going to be insane. There's going to be teaching. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be debate. There's going to be argument. There's going to be an arrest. Someone closest to me is going to betray me. And once we go through those gates, what's going to happen is going to happen at such a pace, they won't be listening. They won't even show up for the trial. So I've got this moment before we go through the gates to tell them something that's incredibly important. And it's triggered. It's triggered by someone in that crowd that's walking with him. There was a scribe, a Pharisee, a religious leader saying, hey Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? And it's said with a tone of expectation, almost that religious audacity of, when is it coming because I know when it comes, I'm gonna be one of the first in. And in that moment, Jesus pauses and he turns and everybody stops. And the dust from the path begins to settle to the ground. and Close enough, you can can smell the sweat and the odor of outside. And he tells a story. We find it in Luke chapter 18. You might say, wait a minute, I thought thought we were in Romans. We are. We're going to get there. It's about three blocks to the right. It's not a long trip. Three books to the right. But but first, to understand where we're going today, this passage is huge. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Have you ever known religious people like that? Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The crowd had to lean in a little bit at this moment because Jesus has just put the best of society and that day with the worst of society. You and I hear the word Pharisee and we have some pushback because we know church history. If you grew up in church, you know that Pharisees were audacious in their religiosity, but at that time, the word Pharisee was respected. This was someone who knew the word of God, the first five books in the Old Testament, and could quote them, not, not Genesis, Exodus, Exodus. Exodus, Leviticus, but quote the words. In the first five books, the law, the Torah, they had all that down. They'd memorized the 24 chapters in the book of the Mishnah. They'd given their lives to trying to live holy, and they'd given their lives to trying to honor God. And nobody's perfect, but but they at least put themselves out there like that. So in that day, Pharisee was a very respected title. In fact, to be a Pharisee, You had to be invited by three other Pharisees who had to put their name down as supporting you and in agreement that you become a Pharisee and saying, we put our credibility in this person's hands. We believe they can do it. So it's a small group of people, but very respected. And then tax collector. There was nothing worse in that culture. This was a Jewish person who had sold out to his own people and was collecting taxes for the Romans government and, Roman government and adding on top of it whatever he wanted, robbing his own people, betraying his own people. And so in this story, when Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector, people lean in, this is going to be good. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. Not Not just what I earn, but all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance because often people that are made to feel unworthy by church people stand at a distance. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven He beat his breast, his chest, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I I have nothing to offer you. I don't have a resume like this guy. I have nothing in my heart, nothing I can pull out of my pocket, nothing I can go to in my past that makes me worthy to even approach you. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And then Jesus said something that, that there had to be a gasp from the crowd, because what he said was unthinkable. He said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. It's a legal term, it means right with God. Jesus said to the crowd, it's the tax collector that was right with God that day. And then he said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can you believe the Pharisees' prayer? like, we don't pray like that. You don't walk into church and if we ask you to stand and lead us in a word of prayer, you don't stand up and say, God, thank you that I'm here. These people are blessed that I'm here today. Thank you that I have such a great marriage. Not like Bob or John, they're sucked, but, but God, you know, mine's doing well. And, And thank you, God, for the way you've blessed me financially. You've blessed me so well. I'm doing really well financially. And so I'm able to give back to you. I'm not robbing you like, like Dan or, or Bob, I'm not doing that like this. We don't pray like that. We just think like that. We don't say it out loud, but we live it in our thoughts. We spend our lives judging people in every crowd, in every atmosphere we walk into. We size people up. And we have categories and we have, we have labels and we identify those we think are worthy and those we think are not. Those we think are good people and those we think are bad people. We spend our lives comparing ourselves to people. The problem is people, they, whoever your they is, that you compare yourself to, they've never been the standard. And if you notice when we compare ourselves to others if you're if you're ever feeling kind of rough about yourself one of the things we do in our human condition most people is if if I'm feeling kind of bad about myself what I can do is compare myself to somebody that I don't think's doing as well Have you ever noticed how we do that Like if we want to feel better we 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 sort of just kind of put other people down and look at other people it's the engine that drives the train of gossip where, okay, I may not be perfect and I may mess some things up, but at least I'm not like, there's always somebody has got it worse. There's always somebody worse than me. And we live with that kind of mentality. We feel better or worse about ourselves, depending on who we're comparing ourselves with. But the only comparison that's legitimate is how do I compare with Jesus? If I want to bring the reality of who I am into sharp focus, I stop comparing myself with others and I start comparing myself with Jesus because God is not looking at how you're doing compared to fill in the blank. And he knows how you're doing compared to Jesus. See, our, our hope is not based on our performance, something we could stand and tell God in a prayer. Did you notice the Pharisee, his prayer was not so much about God, but about himself. And he wasn't so much requesting from God as he was informing God, almost like a sense of entitlement, God, because I do things for you, because I, because I go to church, because I try to do good, because I give occasionally, I've got some things I need you to handle for me. This is who I am, and I expect some things from you. That, that's, that's his attitude, it's his performance, but our hope is not based on our performance, it's based on our position. It's not about me living good enough or better than. It's about the mercy and the grace of God in my life that he offers me through Jesus. And I wonder if all of that, all of that was on Paul's mind as we move into Romans chapter 2. As the Holy Spirit of God inspires Paul to write Romans chapter 2, it's the word of God inspired by God but written through a man. I wonder if that was on his mind because remember Paul was one of the best of the best. Paul, when he was Saul, was a Pharisee. He was the up-and-coming, the fastest promoted. He was the guy that graduated from the Ivy League school of Gamaliel. He was the guy that was brilliant and could speak at least four languages. He was the guy whose life was all about being holy and trying to pursue God. And uh, I wonder if all of that is on his mind and messing him up because he came to the place where he realized that's not what makes you right with God. Chapter 1 ends with this unsettling reality. That anybody that's put anything in place of God, your sexuality, your lack of integrity, your stuff, when you and I don't live in a way that God teaches, you're storing up the wrath of God. Chapter 1 verse 18 talks about the wrath of God. And we discussed how there's the passive wrath of God and there's the active wrath of God. And so Paul in chapter 1 is speaking of the the passive wrath wrath of God. But now in chapter two, he's going to move more into the active wrath of God. So chapter two, verse one, it starts with the word you. And if you write in your Bible or you're taking notes, in place of you, you might want to put the word, uh, your name, <laughs> you, you, me. He's basically saying, okay, if we got through chapter one and you don't think like there was nothing that hit you right between the eyes, you don't think anything applied to you. Okay, you, the rest of you, everybody, we're all included. You are, I am. You therefore have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Passing judgment, judging everyone. In our our culture, it's become like breathing. We judge everybody, but we want to be judged by nobody we judge everybody else but we excuse ourselves when we mess up well i was tired i was tired i was was hungry or hangry i overslept i was overwhelmed you know i'm just i know i messed up but i'm busy i'm busy have you ever stopped to consider so is everybody else so is everybody else we have a family home in texas and uh, we're doing a couple things on it that require a permit to be pulled and so uh, we, um, for, for inspection. And so the inspection was supposed to take place, and they kept telling me, okay, it's today or tomorrow, today or tomorrow, today or tomorrow, and it was never happening. And so I'm trying to call. For two and a half weeks, I can't reach anybody on the phone. Like work has stopped, nothing's happening, I'm losing time, I'm losing money, we can't deal with this, two and a half weeks. Now maybe that doesn't sound like a long time to you, but 30 minutes is a long time to me just how I'm wired, and so I can't, I can't get the lady, I'm not gonna say her name, because this is gonna go online, but, but I can't get the lady on the phone. So finally, I've had enough. I call some people that I know, because I'm from that area, and we end up talking to a county judge, and he calls the mayor, and the mayor calls me. Now, you, <laughs> you can't pull that off in Orlando, who are you? But small town Texas, you can pull that off. And so I explained the whole thing to the mayor. Here's the problem, here's what we're dealing with, I need this resolved, I need this to happen. And she says, I am so sorry that's happened, I know it's been two and a half weeks, but she's been really busy. She's been in a lot of meetings. Well, I've always wanted to meet somebody that had meetings. I, I had no idea. People were busy. I cannot imagine. I don't even understand what that's like. She's in, she, wait, wait, you're you're telling me she's in so many meetings, she can't return a flipping phone call. She found me to take my money to pull the permit, but now I can't reach somebody on the dadgum phone because she's in meetings. That's the best you got. That's the best excuse. I, I went into judging. I went into, I went into a little bit of judging, but. I, I, I'd never stopped to consider what may be going on in that lady's life, what may be happening in her marriage or her family, that they're trying to protect out of confidentiality, and they're not going to share that with me because, frankly, it's none of my business. I jumped immediately to making some assumptions. And, and listen, I think COVID has put us all in that place. Anything happens, well, it's COVID. It's COVID. There are 12 lizards on the back porch. COVID. It's COVID. <laughs> Now, if you lead anything, if you're in leadership, it is a great excuse to try stuff you would have never tried before. Because if it doesn't work, you can just say, COVID, it's COVID. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> but but I, I think it's put us all in a place of a little more frustration because we see some of the incompetence. Of, no, it's not COVID, it's incompetence. That's what it is. That's a separate sermon. We'll, we'll get to that some other time, maybe. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment. We look at our community, we look at our city, we look at our country, we look at our world, and we think this is so messed up. And that, that this is so messed up, that's put in you by God. That, that, that is a, a craving and a desire for righteousness, for things to be right. It, it's a recognition that there are some things that are, that are wrong. This is so messed up. But you know what we never do? We, we look at other people. We look at our community, our city, our country, our world. This is so messed up. We never look in the mirror and say, this is so messed up. I'm so messed up. We have more cultural awareness than we have self-awareness. We protest everything. And we've got our things that we're for and our things that we're against. But I, I, I've never seen anybody protest themselves. I've never seen anybody carry the sign, I'm a screw up. I blew up my marriage with some poor choices. I destroyed my finances because I was robbing God as a Christ follower and spending more than I brought in. I've never seen the person carrying the sign, protesting who they are, focused on who they are and how they've blown it. No one does that. No one looks at what's wrong with me. We look at what's wrong with everybody else and we judge it. And we judge everyone and everything except ourselves. And this is how we get to the place of blaming the economy or the government or education, while ignoring the reality that a year and a half ago, before inflation gave all of us a 7.5% pay cut, while the economy was roaring and we were, during all that, we were spending more than we were making, increasing our debt, if you're a Christ follower, robbing God many by not tithing. We were cooking this recipe long before dinner was served. See, if you and I bring the first 10%, if you're a Christ follower, if you're not a Christ follower, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to you. If you're a Christ follower, the Word of God says the first 10% of my income belongs to the local church. And the only people I've ever met that get mad about me saying that are people who are robbing God and not doing it. It's a little sensitive. But if we put God first, he promises to partner with us and be our protector and our provider. And a year and a half, two years ago, five years ago, if I'm putting God first and bringing the first 10%, and I'm saving 10%, and I'm living on 80%, we get to today, whatever the economy does, I'm all right. I'm all right. Not happy about it, but I'm all right. But it's easier to blame others. It's easier to judge others. Because if it's somebody else's fault, I can criticize them and do nothing about me. Have you noticed how we see the problem so clearly in other people? Have you noticed how clearly we see the problem in people we disagree with? One of the most shocking thoughts to ever occupy some people's minds is that one day you're going to stand before God and realize you weren't right about everything. And your kids are going to be in the background at that moment with a standing ovation when you figure it out. My financial life is ruined because of COVID and inflation. No, it's not. My marriage didn't make it because she, because he, no, that wasn't it. My, my kids aren't doing well because the teacher and the coach. No, it's not it. When you spend your life looking at things or people you can't change, you'll never change what you could change. And maybe part of the reason we judge is that we're so encouraged to. All of society says, make a judgment, pronounce judgment. We want your judgment. We're constantly judging each other. Look at how much judgment takes place on social media. Likes and dislikes, thumbs up and thumbs down. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think. We're we're all judging Yelp and Google reviews and people, people review churches. People review like, I'm I'm, going to walk into church and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to decide what I think about what God is doing in this place. I don't know a lot. I just know I didn't like that song they sang. And The coffee, the coffee. By the way, the coffee now is awesome. <laughs> but average church coffee, it sucks. Like, I don't know where you've been before, but the coffee. And, and, and give reviews. You know one of the things I can't wait for? I hope one day as a pastor they let me review people. <laughs> oh, you said that about the church? Well, let me just tell everybody about you for a second. Let me help you. You know, I don't know how many stars. I give you a one star in your marriage, and here's why. Like, they won't let me do that. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But, but we, or, or the people, the church was wonderful. It was an amazing service, worship team, freaking awesome. I loved it. I'm coming back. Four stars. <laughs> Why are you, four stars? Well, there's nothing perfect. I, shut up. If you want other people to come, it's five stars. By the way, if you've never done that, that'd be a good thing to do anyway. In our, our judging culture, that, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But, but we, live, we live in a culture of judgment. And that's a problem because a culture of judgment brings an atmosphere of criticism. When you're judgmental, you become critical. And it doesn't matter what people say or do, you can be so judgmental that you can become so critical that you view everything in a negative context. That's what leads to they're bad and we're good. Earlier in the series, I told you there's a mosaic of names and characteristics of God and descriptions of God in the Scriptures. God is love. God is faithful. There are all these ideas about God. And the main idea, the thing that's mentioned the most over 600 times is the holiness of God. But did you know also in the Scriptures there are some names and descriptions of our enemy in Scripture? And did you know Satan is called the accuser because he's constantly accusing? And you and I take on the quality And think like Satan when we accuse or assume the worst of someone in our minds. Paul is saying we need to be careful about judging others because criticism comes with it. If a spirit of judgment or cultural criticism gets into the church, it brings rules, more rules than you could ever keep, and a lot of judging people and a lot of what's called legalism. In the atmosphere of the church, it leads to everybody attacking and criticizing everybody else and saying, oh, it's great to see you on Sunday morning, but then you get in the car, I can't stand her, you know, she, and who hears and sees all of it? Your kids. These are the churches that beat people down instead of building people up. They don't encourage, they discourage. If a spirit of judgment or cultural criticism gets into parenting, it brings an atmosphere that is impossible to raise healthy kids in. Because if parents are the judge, kids are always on trial. And in a home with judgmental attitudes, kids do not distinguish between sins and mistakes. Everything's the same category. Hey, parents, kids make mistakes that aren't always sin. In fact, church people, adults make mistakes that aren't always sin. When you have a little kid and they're just a few months old, maybe a year old, and they have that poop explosion in their diaper, and you're thinking they, they pooped and it's on their neck. How did they, how, so much PSI in that, so like how? How is that, a? how do you pull that off? I have an above average kid, very gifted. They're able to do something I didn't know was humanly possible. They're they're gonna get chicken pox on vacation. They're gonna wet the bed in the middle of the night at the most inconvenient time when you're exhausted. And those are not sins, they're unfortunate. Some of them mistakes, but they're gonna spill their milk. They're gonna trip and fall. And when parents live in a spirit of judgment, it brings a culture of criticism where everything the kid does is dealt with as though it's a sin. And that leads to total discouragement and defeat, because it teaches that there are two categories, perfect or worthless. And it's what creates hiding, where we learn to hide. And the last thing we're going to do is be honest or come clean, because when we do, mistakes will be defined as sin. But parents, when you create a culture of love and grace and forgiveness, and this this is where Paul is going, it encourages people to live honestly and to be honest because it's the kindness of God that draws people to him. It's not the fear of God. Fear of God may drive somebody to pray a prayer, Jesus, I want you in my life because I don't want to go to hell, but that kind of prayer rarely changes somebody's life. Fear is not a motivator for life change. It's the kindness of God when I recognize his mercy, his grace. He sent his son to die for me, how deeply he loves me. It's the kindness of God that draws me to him. And parents, it will be your kindness that draws your kids to you. I'm not talking about a kindness that lets them get away with anything. No, you've you, you got to be a parent. I mean, some things are mistakes, but some things are sin. And you're there to train the child in the way they should go. if a spirit of judgment or cultural criticism gets into a marriage... <laughs> it becomes an atmosphere of pain because court is always in session and one person is always the judge waiting for you to do something wrong so they can pronounce a verdict. It's an atmosphere that chokes out love and intimacy. It gives birth to anxiety and fear in each spouse. You want me to answer that? I will. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Mine was ringing backstage earlier. It was beautiful. But, but it, it creates this fear in each spouse. And so if I say or do anything wrong, that's the only thing that's going to be noticed. And that's the only thing we're going to talk about. When both spouses are fighting over who sits in the judge's seat, it becomes a cold and distant marriage. And listen, listen, listen. In marriage, if you act like judges, you'll eventually hire lawyers. If a spirit of judgment or cultural criticism gets into friendships, It destroys them. Now this can be where two friends are always criticizing each other. And we need to be careful in the words we use even with the people that we're closest to because we can develop patterns of put down that we mean as humorous but they are not always received that way. And it can create an atmosphere around us where other people and younger people learn from us. We need to be careful in our friendships about being judgmental toward each other. It can also be where you're friends with somebody who's always putting everybody else down. And those kinds of friends are exhausting. Every time you hang out with them, the playlist is the worst hits of what they know about everyone else. And all you hear are their opinions of what they know and their judgments on other people. That's why for some of you, the holidays are horrible. You have to hang out with some people like this. They're called family, and you wouldn't have picked them, but somehow they're in it, and it's just, you can't stand it. Listen, people who judge others to you will judge you to others. And a spirit of judgment creates a culture of criticism. And when you and I get to the place, now remember, he's writing to the church at Rome, Christ followers. When you and I get to the place that we look at others, people, organizations, systems, philosophies, Jesus says, treat others the way you want to be treated, and we don't enjoy being judged. In fact, it's maddening when we're judged. So what do we do? What do we do when we see that there's a clear problem? Okay, I'm not supposed to be judgmental, but there, there's this thing that's happening that I see. We, we are supposed to have discernment. So, so what do I do? I, it's not that I'm not supposed to recognize what's going on. It's not that I turn a blind eye. It's not that I ignore and act like it's not a big deal. The reality is we need to spend most of our time dealing with ourselves and working on ourselves. If, if you and I would concern ourselves, is ourselves a word or ourselves? What is it, grammar? Selves, ourselves, ourselves. I grew up in Texas, that's where we make up words and grammar and everything else, so I never know. She was an English major, so sometimes I'll ask because I want to be, be right and I don't want to be judged. But <laughs> if, we would foc- if I would focus on me and you focus on you, that would remove a lot of the tension and strife in our community. But there are those moments when it's crystal clear, a spouse, a friend, a family member, a child, a parent has an issue that's got to be addressed. How do we do it? If we, if we don't want to have a critical spirit, how do we do it? There are really only two options. You can be a coach or a critic. A coach and a critic see the same problem, but they respond differently. A critic critic shoots you from a distance and walks away. A a critic fires darts from their mouth in your direction, and the people closer to them hear most of it. You might hear about it, and they walk away. That's what a critic does. But a, a, a coach is very different. I remember when the boys were younger, and played football, they had some amazing coaches, and a good coach will draw near to you, will will thoughtfully show you the mistake. I remember times a coach put their arm around one of my boys and Talk about the mistake with a smile on their face and give them a tip on how to do it better next time and give them a second chance and I go back out there and and do it again and believe in the kid and and encourage them. Man, you can do this. I know your talent. I've been coaching a long time. I've seen it. You've got this. Just do what we just talked about and, and you're gonna be fine. You can handle this. See, the coach's attitude is I want you to succeed and I'm here to help you do it. The critic's attitude is I knew you'd mess up anyway because you're worthless. And the difference between a coach and a critic is not what they see, it's what they say. And Paul is saying, as Christ followers, we need to be extremely careful that that in this social, political, moral environment, we're not catching the spirit of judgment and contributing to the culture of criticism. Because I don't know if you've recognized it, maybe you've been asleep for a while, I don't know. We live in a highly critical culture. You say anything I disagree with, shut up, you should be canceled. And the church, the church should not contribute to that. The church should not be about that. Why do we hold people to standards that we can't even live up to? And that's what Paul's saying. When you judge other people, you bring judgment on yourself. You expect other, to be perp- other people to be perfect. You're not. You expect other people to have the right tone all the time. You don't. You expect other people to use the right words all the time. You don't. You expect other people to be kind and understand you're having a rough time and, and cut you some slack. You don't. Yeah, but look at all the problems. Look at all the, all the pain in the world and everything that's so wrong and somebody needs to judge us. They will. His name's Jesus. Like he didn't say, hey, you sit on my throne and handle this problem for me because I have no idea what to do with these people. Like that, that never happened. God's got it, your responsibility, my responsibility, I worry about me, you worry about you, I deal with the sin in my life, you deal with the sin in your life, we assume the best about people, cut them some slack, we love God and love others, and there's no room for being critical of people in the church or in people we interact with. Verse two, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now that word truth, it's a funny word, you know what it means, truth, and there are not different versions of the truth. This isn't your truth and my truth and their truth and their truth. Truth is not defined by my past experience. Truth is defined by God. And truth is truth for all time. It's universal in all places for all people forever. That's truth. And so what he says here is it's based on truth, God's truth, which is the only truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, remember, if you've been the past couple weeks, I told you in Romans there are a couple things that you and I need to know as we go into this. And the reason we're going through Romans, Romans is a masterpiece of theology. Theology we study because it's important to me as a pastor that you don't just know what you believe, you know why you believe it. Because a lot of times people go through life and we know what we're supposed to believe and we know what our Bible study teacher said and we know what mom and dad said and we know what grandma said, but then life hits and we know what we're supposed to believe, but we have no idea why and it doesn't seem to be working. And so we're studying the book of Romans because I want you to know why you believe what you believe. And Romans is this incredible masterpiece. There's no other book in the Bible that does it better where where Romans just says, here's who God is, here's who you are, and here's what you do about it. Romans lays that out. And there are a couple of things you need to know. One, I told you you're going to feel offended. There are some things we're going to read in the Word of God, you're going to feel offended. But every time, listen, just because I feel offended doesn't mean I'm right. I'm offended when I step on a scale, but that doesn't mean I'm right. (laughs) apparently not that offended, but, and then number two, number two, I said Romans can be complicated, remember who Paul is, brilliant mind, scholar, Ivy League guy, speaks multiple languages, and so sometimes in his writing, even even Peter in 2 Peter said, hey, Paul's hard to understand, like it's, it's in the Bible, Paul writes like an attorney who's writing a contract, Like those of you that bought a house, you you signed a mortgage document, you signed signed eight billion sheets of paper when you bought your house. Did you read every word? (laughs) No, you couldn't have said, like, I I don't know what this means. I don't don't know. Am I giving you all my kids? Like, what does this mean? I I don't understand. And so you ask somebody you can trust, is this, is this, yeah, you're good. The next few verses are going to feel a little bit like that, but we're going to walk through them together. And, And as we do, it's important that you and I understand something. If, if you think about how there are some people who, when they stand before God, they're going to be shocked because they're going to get theirs and they're going to be blown away. Paul has set a tone because, see, you're judging others. You're actually judging yourself. And when you stand before God, you're going to be shocked. We're all going to stand before God. We're all going to give an answer and an account for our lives. And so when you judge others, by default, you accept and you admit there's a truth. The very fact that you judge someone else says you know there's a standard, you know there's a truth, you're holding someone else to it, you have just pronounced guilt on yourself because you've admitted by judging you know there's a standard we should be living by. That's what Paul's saying. Notice the end of verse 3, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The first three verses of Romans chapter 2 basically say, hey, stop being so proud of what you do well. And start to recognize how good God's grace is for what you don't do well. God is not impressed with your resume. So stop thinking of yourself as better than others. There should be no arena in life. There should be no room I walk into, no conversation I have, where I think I'm better than the person I'm talking to. Because the person that I've locked eyes with is just as deeply loved by God as I am. Has just as much value before God as I do. And it doesn't matter whether they agree with you, they like you, they're mean to you. They are just as valuable to God as you are. And we're expected, according to the word of God, to function like that. And when we don't, Paul says, you bring judgment on yourself. Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, you know anybody that's stubborn? Because of your stubbornness, see, if you thought of somebody else right there, you're judging yourself. Never mind. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath, the word used in the Bible, wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God, verse 6, will repay each person according to what they've done. And that's scary as junk. God will repay each person according to what they've done. He's saying you're, you're taking for granted When you judge other people and you view other people as less than, or you categorize and you label people and you draw these conclusions and try to put yourself in the place of God, you're taking for granted the kindness kindness of God, His patience, His tolerance, thinking that you're somehow good enough because you're doing all right. If you weren't good enough, you would have been thumped by now, and you don't understand Everything you're doing is storing up the wrath and anger of God that will be released because He's a just God and He has to judge justly. And we talked about how there's this dam in chapter 1 that's holding back the wrath of God from your life and from my life. What's holding back the wrath of God? Why is it being held up? Who's holding it back? Jesus. Because he loves us and he's patient and long-suffering and he wants to give us an opportunity to see the truth of who I am and how it's my sin, not their sin, my sin, not his or her sin. It's my broken life that is messed up and I need Jesus in my life and I need my sins forgiven and I need to know God in a personal way. That's inside me. See, something that's important, I think that we understand, You, you might wanna write this down. God's mercy towards you does not mean God's approval of you. So often in life, well, I know, I know I'm not doing some stuff the Bible says I'm supposed to be doing and I, I know i got some issues in my life, but I'm, I'm, I'm living okay. I'm doing better than a lot of other people. God's mercy towards you does not mean God's approval of you. Yes, he loves you, but don't think he approves of the life you're living just because all hell hasn't broken loose and that dam hasn't fallen in and the, the wrath of God hasn't poured into your life. And in our nature, nation and our culture, It's been true from the beginning. We tend to rest on a sense that God is happy with us because we are God-blessed America. Now, let me be clear about something. I believe America is the greatest country on the planet of the earth. I am proud to be an American. I love this country. I love the freedom for which it stands, not because we've attained it, but because we chase it. I I love what God's doing in our nation, I love the opportunity the church has. If you're from a different country, me saying that I love America, and I think it's the best country, takes nothing away from you. You should feel the same way about the country that you're from. Just like as a guy, when I say, I think I have the best bride in the world, every married guy here doesn't go, well, But he's not right, no. You don't even care. You think you have the best bride in the world and you should. The only way we have a problem is if you think I have the best bride in the world, then we got a problem and I'll punch you in the throat. But in reality, when I say I have the best bride in the world, it doesn't bother you at all, nor should it bother you when I say, I I believe I live in the greatest country in the history of the world. There's nothing wrong with feeling that and believing that because freedom is precious and freedom is not free and freedom must be fought for. It doesn't just exist perpetually no matter what we do. And so freedom is something we pursue and we have the opportunity in this country to pursue it. But this passage resonates differently in other cultures. We live in God-blessed America, so we think, okay, God loves us. It's fine. He must be okay with how we're living. They don't think this way other places. I've been to places like Africa and India and Moldova and other places, and it's not a hard concept for them to understand what Paul's talking about here, it takes us a little bit more. We think life's hard if we have to wait an extra two months for furniture we ordered. We think life's hard if they're out of our favorite latte. And, and, and by the way, while I'm on that, some of you, if you know somebody that like manages a Starbucks or owns a Starbucks, something I don't understand, when there's a Starbucks in the parking lot with a Publix grocery store, and the Starbucks tells you we don't have any oat milk, I'm thinking you. You could send somebody, like, right there in the same park. They got it in there. It's in there. You can buy it. But that's a separate issue. It's ridiculous. We we get so, I mean, we think life's hard. I can't get my dad gum lot. They're out of oat milk, and they, they don't have a, years ago, years ago, they had, I, I don't drink this anymore because Angie doesn't let me, but they had a, they had a banana coconut frappuccino. It was amazing, and they never brought it back. Somebody stupid made a decision because they would have made so much more money than they've already made. But we think it's hard if they don't have my, We think life's hard if Amazon Prime takes more than a day. Man, life's, this is so hard, oh my gosh. Because we live in God-blessed America. But Paul's teaching right here, just because God is being merciful and extending his patience and tolerating us right now and our sin, don't think it's because he approves of you and how you're living. We have enough money to pay our bills and no one in our family is dying and we're not having to navigate some unexplained tragedy. So we say we're blessed and we assume that that means we have God's favor. God's okay with me. He's blessing me, see? But what about people that have more than you in their their bank account and they don't factor God in at all? What about people who have bigger houses and larger flat screens and more expensive cars, but they don't pray to God at all? They didn't even show up today. They're blessed, but are they they good with God? Or what about the person in Haiti who loves God with all their heart and they're following God every day, but they live on a fraction in a year of what you make in a month? Is that person not blessed because they don't have as much? See, I think what we have to understand and part, part of what Paul's communicating is if we have a great quality of life, it does not automatically mean you have a great quality of spiritual life. The areas we'd say we're blessed doesn't mean God approves of our lifestyle. And Paul is saying God is holding back his wrath and his anger against you. Don't think you won't be judged. You will. You know there's a standard. You judge others by it, and you'll be judged as well. And some of you, your, your future, your life, your relationships, your finances, your home, you're killing yourself, and you don't even see it because you've convinced yourself, I'm not that bad, or God would be intervening and doing something, and things would be falling apart. I'm okay. I can just kind of coast and I know the Bible calls it sin and I can just kind of ignore it. I call myself a follower of Jesus, but I don't have to follow the teachings of Jesus and actually tithe, bring the 10% logo. I don't have to do that. That's not a big deal. I, I don't have to plug in and serve anywhere. I mean, life's not that, I mean, if God really wanted me doing that, he'd put me on my back. He'd do something to get my attention. I, I'm doing all right. No, what you're doing is you are robbing yourself of the life you could be living, the life God has for you, the life created for you. And, and you're, not, you're not getting by with anything. You're building up everything. And the wrath of God is building up And God is a just God, and he notices where we ignore him and where we follow him and how we pursue him. He he notices what we think is no big deal and what we excuse. Hey, God says, hey, sex is my idea. I invented it. Enjoy it between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. It's 2022. Who's God? You're getting away with nothing, and you're building up everything. And God says, hey, because I love you. I want you to know the truth and how this is going to work so you're not uninformed, so you understand my expectation. Romans 2.6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. Do you really want what you deserve? It's a terrifying thought one day will be judged. And then verse seven, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now verse seven, you have to understand Paul's being humorous. In his language, he's trying to say, hey, for everybody that honors God in a way that you live your life perfectly, you're persistent in doing good, you're perfect, you're fine. And he goes into verse eight, by the way, That's none of you. That's basically the tone of verse seven and eight. See, good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people do. Heaven won't be full of good people because good people sin. And sin can't be in heaven, only perfection. And so the only way that I can get that perfection is to accept what Jesus did on the cross when God's wrath toward me was poured out on him because I accepted the free gift of eternal life. And so because of Jesus, I'm seen through the righteousness of Jesus, not in my own condition because he drank my cup of wrath. Paul continues to drive home this reality that we like to ignore, and that is we're all messed up, and none of us are perfect. And We think the goal is I just want to be better. I want this to be a better year, and I want to chase better, and I want a better marriage, and I want to be better around other people. And the problem is better isn't perfect, and me better is still me, a sinner. So everyone's going to get hit with God's anger and wrath. Verse 12, All who sin apart from the law will also perish, for apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It's not not enough just to hear. You've got to obey. There are no gold stars passed out in heaven this morning because you showed up at church. (laughs) Like, it, it doesn't happen. Nobody's getting the Bucky Beaver Award for listening. Like, it's, it's just not reality. Being here means nothing unless you do something with what you hear, unless you apply the teaching of the Word of God to your life. See, in our human condition, we take moments and create monuments. Well, I was there. I was there. That's what happened. I was there when God is taking moments and trying to create a momentum in our life toward him of growth spiritually, where we become more like Jesus. And that happens only when we go to uncomfortable places and we allow the word of God to challenge us. And every time God says something that I disagree with, my response, if I'm mature, is I'm wrong. God, you're right, I'm wrong. My life needs to change. Now, you can't do anything with what you hear if you're not here. But just being here doesn't grow your faith. It's not about what we hear, it's about what we do with what we hear. Then verse 14, indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. He's saying even someone who's never heard of or read the Bible, in their nature they know right and wrong, that there's something created in each of us that God has put there. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. He's saying in our minds, whether we know the Bible or not, whether we read it or not, we know right from wrong. We were created in a way that it's written in our hearts. And sometimes our thoughts plague us with our wrongs. And other times we can rationalize our wrongs. And all of that judges against us because God has placed a moral code inside each of us of right and wrong. And Paul is saying that alone is enough to judge you. Like even apart from the word of God, that by itself is enough to judge you. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. Through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, that will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. Now, I know know you all don't have any secrets, but for the people that you know who do, it's the who you are when no one's watching. It's the you that nobody knows but you. It's what you click on when no one's watching. It's everything you've hidden or you've tried to hide. Paul says, this is going to be judged one day. And every single time your conscience says, you shouldn't do that, and you do it. You shouldn't go there, and you go. You shouldn't say that, and you say it. You shouldn't think that. You, you can't control what thoughts pop in your mind. You can control how long they stay there. Man, you, you shouldn't focus on that and you do it anyway. Every time you violate God's moral, moral law, you are storing up his wrath towards your life. And that wrath is being held back right now. And you have two options about what to do with the wrath of God. And there are only two. You accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers when he drank your cup of wrath on the cross for you. Or you'll, or you'll drink it separately in a place called hell forever. Now, 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 no. no, no, no. When a pastor talks about a place called hell. You most of you don't hear what I'm saying, you hear what you're hearing. Because we have a context of angry churches and angry pastors and I've heard pastors when they talk it almost seems like they're excited people are going to hell. But hell is a reality. And a loving God is willing to talk about his wrath and an eternity separated from him forever because of how how much he loves us and he doesn't want anyone to be separated from him forever. And so the wrath of God is going to be poured out. You and I can accept Jesus drinking it on the cross and taking it for me or we'll take it ourselves in eternity separated from God in hell forever. That's the truth of scripture. And that second group, the second group today, if that's you, today you can stop killing yourself. Today you can stop racing toward the end of you you can actually step into the life God has for you because of his mercy and his grace. You can commit your life to Christ and say, man, I, I accept what Jesus did for me on the cross. I want to invite Jesus to come into my life and forgive my sin and be my God. But listen to me, listen to me. That's not just a prayer. I pray and then I leave and nothing changes. See, inviting Jesus to come into my life involves something called repentance where, and this is what Paul's driving home, where I'm saying, okay, God, I've been wrong and you're Right? I'm not just praying some little prayer that's going to get me to heaven because if that's all it is, it won't get you there. God, I I literally want to give you my life. I ask you to come into my life, and I can't change me. You're going to have to transform me through your spirit on the inside, and, and God's an expert at that. He knows we can't change ourselves. That's why we need him. And listen, if there was any other way to know God, if there was any other way to be right with God apart from Jesus, if hell was not real, why would God have allowed his son to go through being murdered? If that was not the only way, why would God even allow that and Easter to happen three days later and him resurrecting? That, that's how death is defeated, eternal death. That's how sin is defeated. And so today, if you've never committed your life to Christ, you can say, man, that, that's what I want. I want to give my life to Jesus and as best I know how, I want to live a life that honors him. And that doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. That just means my position is now in Jesus. When God looks at me, he looks at me through the blood of Jesus. I'm considered righteous by God because of Jesus, not because of myself. And I want to do my best to live my life in a way that's consistent with what the scripture teaches. And some things I can change quickly and other things are going to take time. Because growth, just like physical growth, spiritual growth takes time. But man, I want Jesus to be my God. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's If that's where you are today, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of your heart. But if today you'd like to commit your life to Christ, and I can't think of a better day to do this than today, if that's where you are, just pray this prayer. Just say, Dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name.